welcome to Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered lands of the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation. My name is Neil Wilson, a co-founder of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival and the Republic of Childhood, our programming for children and youth. And I'm hosting a series of six podcasts which explore education in the face of environmental crises, which is the tagline of the book Teaching in the Anthropocene, a pan-Canadian collection of 43 short essays by leading educators and researchers edited by Alicia Farrell, Candy Skyar, Michelle Lamb, with illustrations and copy editing by Grace Stone. It is published by Canadian Scholars and was released on July 29th, 2022. As the editors write in the introduction, quote, We feel compelled to ask if the climate crisis expands the ethical obligations of teachers to include ensuring livable lives for children yet to come. If not, what can it possibly mean to teach in a world that is prepared to go on without us? It is becoming increasingly apparent that technocratic frameworks and conventional teaching methods are insufficient in the face of climate change dilemmas that are complex, integrative, multi-perspectival, and effectively charged. Time is of the essence and young people feel it. Fueled by concerns for their future and angered by the inaction of adults, students across the globe continue to walk out of school on Fridays to participate in climate strikes. Yet, in the field of education, we have yet to respond in any significant way to the danger the climate crisis poses to the young people we teach. In the first of our series of six podcasts, I spoke with Stan Wilson, an elder of the Opaskawayak Cree Nation, who many years ago coined the term indigiaji as an alternative to the more mainstream and colonial notion of pedagogy, where we have a hierarchical approach of learning passed down from teacher to student. Whereas in Cree traditional knowledge, there is no hierarchy, where in fact we can learn from children and from all of nature. And he spoke about wagatuwun, a Cree word meaning we are all related. Today, it is my distinct pleasure to be in conversation with Alicia Farrell, one of the editors of Teaching in the Anthropocene. Alicia is an associate professor in the Faculty of Education at Brandon University. She is passionate about fostering a caring ecology in the study of education. Her research focuses on teaching, leading and learning in the face of the climate crisis. Using arts-based methods like playwriting, forum theater, narrative photography and poetic inquiry, she collaborates with others to tell stories that will stick to your bones. Her recent research art exhibition at the Art Gallery of Southwestern Manitoba was called Before I Go to Bed Tonight. The exhibition featured the work of 17 young artists who delved into the personal and collective impacts of climate change. Alicia is the author of two books exploring the effective dimensions of educational leadership which came out in 2020, and Ecosophy, or Ecosophy, and Educational Research for the Anthropocene, which came out in 2022. Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio, Alicia Farrell. 
Thank you so much, Neil. It's an honor to be here with you today. Uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. And I just want to say, does the climate crisis necessitate that teachers extend their call to teach into the future and commit to ensuring livable lives for children yet to come? What do you think? I think that the climate crisis is forcing many of us, many educators, to think hard about their work in relation to not only the students that come to them on Monday mornings in class, but also the graduating class of 2052, the graduating class of 2152. And I don't think it's an exaggeration mm. to say that young people are depending on us, uh, not only our current students, but our students yet to come. And I think they're depending on us to acknowledge the severity of the situation, which I don't think we're doing a lot of in schools right now. And they want us to acknowledge how much their futures are going to be impacted. And they think they also need us to help them process some of the abundant emotions that are emerging from their worries about climate change, species extinction, and, and biodiversity losses. And I think they're counting on us to begin to weave stories of you know, adaptation, regeneration, connectivity into what and how we teach so that they can learn to live in a warming world. The question I ask myself all the time is, what is it that's distracting us to death in schools and in teacher educations? Because you and I well know that kids are the most vulnerable or one of the most vulnerable groups to the physical and mental health impacts of climate events. And knowing that, I think it should inform what and how we teach. And I might even go so far as to say that it's unethical in terms of our professional codes of conduct that we have as educators to continue to disavow the impacts of climate change and how much it's gonna impact um, our students' futures. Like last year, I worked with um, 36 young people from Southwestern Manitoba in an eco-arts research project. You referred to that in the introduction and the title of that exhibition ended up being Before I Go to Bed Tonight. And many of the students mm. I interviewed said that climate change was everywhere and, and nowhere in schools. and and um, in part one of the research project, I interviewed them. And one of the things I asked them was, well, what might account for the silence around the climate crisis? And I have to tell you there, um, unsurprisingly, they were really thoughtful and generous in their responses. Um, and some of them said to me, well, Alicia, in some communities, climate change has been politicized. Or they, they empathize with teachers who are worried about conflict erupting in their classes if, if climate change was perceived as controversial, for example. But one student said, and so wise for 14 years old, that people, even teachers, don't like to talk about things that scare the heck out of them. I don't know if I was that wise when I was 14, but this young person certainly is. And my research bears this out too. So when we're confronted by difficult knowledge, we sometimes avoid it or traffic in unrealistic optimism. And I, I think that sometimes that 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 all those happy affects, we tend to operate with those in schools quite a bit. So we we often use language like kids are the future and kids will figure it out or aren't they great leaders? Um, and, and some of that happy talk kind of um, it disavows our responsibility to work shoulder to shoulder in solidarity with them um, to, to get at some of these anthropogenic causes of climate change. And the other thing we sometimes do as educators or just, you know, other humans walking the planet is we freeze um, in the face of difficult knowledge. So 
And, and one thing I think is important to say, which I think young people are pointing to, is that our inaction or the silence around climate change in schools is not a crisis of information. I mean, we, we have the information. Um, climate scientists have been really clear with us about what's going to happen if we don't get our fossil fuels. So, so the young people I interviewed, what they're naming in their com their comments to me in the interviews, but also what they were creating in the artworks they made as a part of the project, they were pointing to a kind of madness, really. Um, so they show up at school, they sit in their desks, they do their work. Um, all the while, they know that their future has been put into question. And so for me, they're naming an absurdity because it's absurd to evade the topics of climate change or adaptation and regeneration in schools right now. So I think one of the key things we need to do is, yeah, as educators, and I'm working on this every day myself, is to become um, what Carolyn Hickman calls is our own inner activist. Um, so we become we we get more comfortable confronting our own climate or eco anxiety, so that we can better create a holding environment for our students. Um, worries and concerns about their future. Wow. So what are some of the challenges that you um, as an educator face and, and what is your experience with classroom teachers and, and some of the, the barriers they face in trying to introduce, let's say, s these spaces where um, what you call arts-based eco-pedagogies um, can really have such a positive impact as you have shown in your work and research? Yeah, I think that um, one of the challenges that uh, teachers face right now is there are more and more um, folks who have in powerful positions who want to reduce the complexity uh, of teaching to uh, standardized assessments, outcome-based learning, and the context we're living in right now um, is very uncertain. It's very complex. Uh, it calls for young people in the company of loving and caring educators to be creative, to be inquiry-minded, um, to think about the world in new and different ways. Because what we're what re what really education ought to be rooted in right now, I'd be so bold as to say, is figuring out a new way that we can learn to live together in the face of such difficulty. So. Although I immerse myself <laughs> in research around climate education uh, for a good part of my day, um, you might think me a sad person, <laughs> but but actually I'm I'm radically hopeful because I think that um, education in the in the face of the climate crisis opens up some radical possibilities for thinking about education anew, and so I have great faith in the power of arts based work to help us with that. So let me give you an example. I was working with a group of young people and we were using forum theater to explore some of the root causes of the climate crisis. Because one of the things we know is that people are connected, but they're not connected equally. Um, we could point to what's going on in Pakistan, for example, right now um, with the flooding. So mm -hmm. in Pakistan right now, 30 million people have been impacted by the floods. Um, you might say, well, Alicia, you know, at that time of year, there's often a lot of rainfall. Well, yes, but because of, you know, glacier melting in the north, there was severe pressure put on waterways and, you know, an inland sea poured into, you know, the middle of the country. And so, um, you know, 19,000 schools, 
destroyed, um, 30 million people impacted, yet Pakistan, we know, is responsible for less than 1% of global emissions. And so we need to address, particularly students who are living in the global north, like the students I work with, we need to address those inequities that were connected but not connected equitably um, and do that in such a way that brings people closer. Because one of the things that, 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 that I've learned from the wonderful teachers that I have the opportunity to work with is that both students and they feel themselves, we can sometimes shut down when we're faced with difficult conversations or knowledge. But what art can do is it can bring us closer. So if you and I, Neil, were looking at the same painting, for example, you and I would bring our own lived experience to that artwork. We would see different things. You would interpret the mood, the context, you know, in it, in it differently than I would. And that's the extraordinary potential of art. So last week when I was doing some forum theater work with students, we created images, so tableaus with our bodies to represent some of the difficulties around the climate crisis and our feelings around that. And then the students in the audience who are watching the images being created started to interpret them in their own ways. And one of the things we were doing in that moment was we were holding um, competing interpretations at the same time. And boy, do we need practice doing that more than ever. You know, we kind of live in our social media bubbles. But I think one thing art can do is it can bring people together in the same space and time. And it can say, yeah, let's look at this thing together. And we can make our own meaning of it and share it together. And it's done in such a way that isn't, you know, preachy or teachy. It's It, it, it invites us to come closer, even when it produces some tension in, inside of us. Mm, I, I love that notion that art, uh, you know, can bring people together and, and also what you're, what you're speaking about, this uh, holding competing interpretations together uh, in, in the same space and time. I mean, that's, that's a tough one, even for seasoned, uh, so-called seasoned thinkers, because it seems to me anyway, when I look back, uh, you know, there's a right and there's a wrong, you know, it, it, there's a, a good answer and a bad answer. But I think what you're experiencing and, and, and teaching teachers is that you can hold two things at once and look at them simultaneously and then maybe begin to think in a, in a new way about solutions and maybe even just about what you were talking about, becoming our own inner activist. Yeah, and I think that um, one of the things that I'm learning to do, and I have to practice this every single day, is to get more comfortable with the uncertainty of it all. So I'm not unrealistically hopeful, nor am I a doomer. <laughs> um, I'm somewhere uh, you know, on that continuum on any given day. And one of the things that I'm learning from other folks who think deeply about the psychological implications of living um, in such uncertain times is we all have to get a whole lot more comfortable with uncertainty. And so think about how complex that is for teachers um, and school leaders, principals. They are people who are expected to know, give the answers, be the experts. And what we're asking them to do, you know, in the face of the climate crisis, is get a whole lot more comfortable with not knowing and helping their students to be more comfortable with not knowing because we don't know what's going to happen in 20, 30 years, right? There's lots of questions. There's some good predictions 
out there. Um, but part of our work is learning to live and maybe thrive in the face of uncertainty. And I think art can help us to do that. Mm. I'm just wondering where you see, you know, the the successes and where you see the challenges moving forward, giving, given that many of the kids that you, children that you are dealing with in your art-based projects are very intelligent, very knowledgeable, and, and they, they are, they're getting fed up. Yeah, I think um, I'd like to draw upon um, uh, a scholar called Deborah Britzman, and um, she's impacted my work in, in many significant ways. And one of the uh, questions she posed um, in a seminar she gave in the face of um, reductive uh, educational policies was when did education become so small? Mm. And so all of the, all of that chatter around reducing the complexity of education to you know um, literacy and numeracy initiatives, uh, for example, or um, uh, holding schools accountable for success metrics that maybe don't capture, a robust understanding of what it means to be successful. You know, when did when did education become so small? So, what do we need to do as educators? Um, uh, there are um, many young people who have said to me, "You know, Alicia, it's time that we all have to be activists." Right. So, there's lots of pressure from outside forces um, to say education should be neutral. Um, we have no time for neutrality anymore. We have to become braver in our field and say it is not acceptable to not deal with this um, this crisis in the context of education. We need to be advocates inside our buildings and outside of our buildings to encourage other citizens um, to put the public back in public education. We know that in places where there is strong support for robust public education, that communities are healthier, wiser, more committed to one another. Um, and so we have to resist at all costs the language around divide and conquer, the assumptions that underpin sort of that fast food model of, it, of schooling, uh, which focuses on social mobility. Um, and consuming, we have to resist that at all costs. And so some of that is in, you know, teachers um, volunteering to help co-write curriculum um, or to interpret curriculum in ways that are about connection, regeneration, and rewilding our psyche and our world. Mm. Um, some of that is, um, you know, getting outside and learning with kids and fostering a deep love and connection for the human, more than human world. We won't take care of things we don't love. So fostering a love for that may result in young people who grow up to be voters, who elect people, who will um, take care of our planet. Um, so those are just some ideas I have in response to your very good question. Yeah, I think what you're pointing to, Neil, which really resonates with me is the power of the collective, right? Sort of mm -hmm. going back to that fast food model of education, that divide and conquer mentality where we we want to sort of support the individual needs of individual children. And of course we want to do that. But in that kind of, the, un, under those differentiated instruction mantras, we've lost the power of the collective to some degree. And, and that 
has permeated, I think, in, in the field as well. So I think you're right. We need each other. We need to organize. Um, and so a number of the authors that contributed to the collection, you know, have their own ways of doing that. I'm thinking of Heather McGregor and her and her chapter, and they're trying to create a network of social studies teachers, for example, that will come together and take up these topics in, in, in really interesting and compelling ways. Um, uh, in Manitoba, I'm going to be um, sending an all call out in the new year um, because there is a lot of interest uh, and passion and commitment for um, doing work in this area around climate change education. And so uh, I'll be um, working with some others uh, in a network called Teach for Their Future. And we're going to invite not only Manitoba educators, but also educators from other, um, other places in Canada uh, who want to get together to share resources. Uh, and not only that, but to talk together about how we can be more effective advocates. Because I think you're right. If we, if we, put our collective brain power together, I, I think we can be, you know, more powerful and more effective uh, in our work together. And then it's also going to be a place, um, this Teach for Their Future network, to help process some of our own worries and understanding. So I'm I'm actually back at school myself right now. Uh, I'm taking a climate psychology program. And one of the things that the many gifted teachers in that program are teaching us is that um, as educators, we need to take care of our own mental health and well-being in relation to the climate crisis. Because in their, their clinical practice and in their research, the folks who are working in professions that are oriented towards the future, like all teachers are, um, there are some pretty significant impacts for those folks. So we also need to support teachers uh, in terms of how they're making sense of all this. So what does it mean to be a teacher in the face of such difficulty? So how do you care for self and others? How do you as a teacher deal with intergenerational anger? So uh, because once you open up the space to have these complicated conversations about climate change, some kids are going to be really mad and really disappointed, angry about adult inaction. And when that's focused our way, how do we deal with that in a way that contains those abundant emotions, um, but also helps us to move forward together? So, um, so there are people that are organizing. Um, there are people coming together. and. Um, and I think um, there's more and more educators who are becoming, criti becoming critically conscious about the work we need to do in this area, the urgent work we need to do in this area. There is a lot um, happening in Manitoba around this. I wouldn't say it's coming from, you know, the provincial government in terms of formal curriculum documents, but there are a lot of uh, talented, wise engaged teachers who are doing incredible work. I'm thinking of an art teacher in Brandon who I worked with uh, in the Eco Arts Research Project. Um, and she's now including the Eco Arts Project as part of her art curriculum for grade 11 and 12 students. So wow. it's not an extracurricular activity anymore. You know, there's sco many schools have things like sustainability clubs. But Tara, you know, the name of um, this teacher, so Tara has understood that it actually has to become embedded in the what and the how we teach. 
And so it's become part of her art curriculum with students. And I'm going to go in and do some work with those students again um, this term. And we're going to use some forum theater exercises uh, to mm. help inspire some of the art that they're going to make. Um, there's another teacher I know that is uh, talking to her grade three class uh, about how to care and love for the more than human world. And so mm -hmm. she's doing um, uh, a narrative photography project. So the students are going to have access to cameras and she's going to be taking nature walks with them so the students can photograph the beauty of the outside world around them. I know another teacher who's done um, a tremendous amount of learning around mental health and well-being, and she's building in more meditative practices to help students deal with um, issues related to anxiety, for example. And so many of her meditations she's teaching students are grounded in getting deeply connected um, to the earth. And so I've participated in some of those exercises and it has a tremendous effect. There's other Manitoba educators who are learning more about uh, nature-based learning. And so they're drawing on the research um, um, of forest walking, you know, that's coming out of Japan right now. And so, because we know that when kids are outside and, and if you were walking in the forest, you know, for an hour, there's lots of compelling research coming out now about how that decreases stress and anxiety. It's an antidepressant. Um, it makes you feel less hostile when you're out in the world. Uh, and so um, there are so many wonderful things happening. Um, and so I think part of our work is, and that's why I'm so grateful uh, to have participated in this podcast with you, is to amplify and uplift the work that those teachers doing are doing because it's counter to some of those reductive approaches that um, some politicians uh, are advocating for uh, that make what Deborah Britzman said, you know, education too small. That was my edited conversation with Alicia Farrell. In part three of our six-part podcast, I'm in conversation with Maria Vamvalis, who explores the tension between the rise in student anxiety as a result of teaching about the realities of climate change and the misunderstandings or false narratives that remain in place if teachers do not teach about these realities. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.